I would want humans to learn how to live sustainably on this planet. Welcome to Nature Magic. Today I'm talking to Nikita Zimov, director of Pleistocene Park. Nikita is a Russian scientist at the cutting edge of the fight against climate change. Nikita and his father, Sergei, have been resurrecting an ice age biome since 1998. Pleistocene Park is a major initiative that includes an attempt to restore the mammoth steppe ecosystem, which was dominant in the Arctic in the late Pleistocene era. The initiative requires replacement of the current unproductive northern ecosystems by highly productive pastures, which have both a high animal density and a high rate of biocycling. Biocycling is the cycle through which energy and essential substances are transferred among species. Grazing ecosystems in the Arctic promote climate cooling through a series of ecological effects. Experiments with animal reintroductions were begun in 1988, including eight major herbivore species, reindeer, Yakutian horse, moose, bison, musk ox, yak, Kalmykian cow, and sheep. It will soon hopefully welcome the genetically cloned woolly mammoth that is predicted to be born in the next six years. This project has the capacity to spread across the Arctic region and reduce worldwide carbon emissions by up to 20%. We have much to thank these tough, resilient scientists who started and have been running Pleistocene Park with no recognition until very recently. Suddenly, everyone's heads are turned in their direction and the world is looking at their important work and their life's quest to save this planet. Hi, Nikita. It's very, very exciting to talk to you today. Um, I was Googling on Google Maps to see where you were because Pleistocene Park is up in the north uh, east of Russia and you said you were going to be near Smolensk uh, with a herd of bison, which seems to be a long way west. So can you tell us what, what you're doing with a herd of bison at the moment? Uh, well, I think you're a bit out of date. Uh, I was with herd of bison near Smolensk in the uh, second part of July. Okay. And uh, we were transporting them from Denmark uh, in Smolensk, that's the border of Russia. And we uh, changed the truck at the border and we drove to Arkhangelsk. Arkhangelsk is a seaport in the White Sea, which is at the Arctic coast. And from there, the bison were traveling uh, along the northern route, so through the Arctic Ocean, all the way to the placing park in the northeastern part of Russia. And it took them like three weeks in the sea. And now they, all the bison are released for, for about a month, they're already in the park. So they were released on September 9th. And well, let's say they're working on uh, restoring the high productive grazing ecosystem. Brilliant. Did you have bison there before, or is this the first um, herd of bison? No, that's a, that's our already second herd, uh, which we're introducing. Uh, we were buying the same bison from the uh, same farm in Denmark in 2019, and they did quite well. And they, the first herd showed that in the Arctic, bison can live on their own without any support from humans and can even reproduce, so they already have babies. 
and we now will be looking for every opportunity to bring more bison to the placing park. Okay, so we better backpedal for the listeners so that you can explain what the Pleistocene Park is and how you got involved. Can you tell the listeners the concept of the park, which is so fascinating? Yes, sure. So Pleistocene Park, uh, it's a scientific project uh, which goal is to restore high productive grazing ecosystems in the Arctic. And we say that these ecosystems will allow us to mitigate climate change. So that's briefly. The project was founded by my father, Sergei Zimov, uh, back in 1996. It was official start of the uh, company, but uh, the idea first appeared and first experiments started back in the 80s, still in the Soviet Union. So what's the idea behind that? Just 15,000 years ago, the modern Arctic looked totally different than it looks now. Back then, on those uh, pretty much never-ending pastures, uh, lived millions of uh, animals. So bison, horses, mammoth, reindeers, uh, lions, wolves. So the ecosystem looked pretty much like Serengeti look now. So that's uh, how it was. Then uh, the climate changed. First humans appeared. And with overhunting, they quickly uh, broke, let's say, the balance in the nature. So in the Arctic, grasses and herbs cannot compete against other vegetation without the help of animals. So if there is no animals, which trample down uh, mosses, uh, lichen, small trees, this vegetation slowly taking over. And what humans did, they dropped down number of animals. Some animals maybe even dropped, dropped extinct entirely, and they kept the number of animals low for extended period of time. And the pastures degraded. And now modern Ar Arctic look very different than it used to be 15,000 years ago. So now there is very, very few animals. The ecosystems are super low productive. Everything's growing extremely slowly in the Arctic. And the only animals which live in this ecosystem in abundance are mosquitoes. And uh, what we say that we can do the reverse shift. If in the past, uh, humans managed to destroy this ecosystem by reducing number of animals and keeping it low for extended period of time, we'll do the opposite. We'll artificially increase number of animals and make sure they uh, adapt into environment and, they, and we artificially maintain their living, so we provide forage. And the animals, by grazing, they are once again allowing grasses and herbs to be dominating vegetation. So if there is intensive grazing, let's say uh, seedlings of trees cannot establish. Mosses and lichens are, are getting physically trampled. And slowly grasses and herbs taking over and the productivity of ecosystem increase, fertility of soils increase, and uh, the pastures are formed. So animals, the more they graze, the better is the pasture. So there is, of course, uh, some uh, complication that you need to shepherd animals, make sure there is no overgrazing, so there is even uh, grazing effect everywhere. And uh, in the wild ecosystems, that was always done by predators, and we really hope to have predators in our uh, place and park as well at some point. So that's the goal. And the reason why we're doing that, as I already said, that we uh, argue that these ecosystems can allow us to uh, mitigate climate change. And there is four main phenomena 
why we say these ecosystems are better than we, what we have right now. So the first uh, thing and the most kind of direct effect is albedo effect. Albedo is a pretty much reflectance of the surface. The light is the surface, the white is the surface. The higher portion of energy, solar energy, it reflects back to space. So staying cold. For example, in every uh, city, if you touch uh, dark asphalt, it will be hot. If you touch a you know, white car, it will be kind of cold. So same with ecosystems. The lighter the ecosystem, the colder it is. Okay, uh, that's, that's very interesting. And when I'm looking in Google Maps now around the park, um, I can see there seems to be a lot of lakes as well and rivers in that landscape. Is that what I'm seeing? I can see lots of round or maybe the, yes. their little forestry. Uh, yes, there is lots of lots of lakes. Uh, more, I think, if you look at Google, Google, uh, if if you look at satellite imagery, I think satellite imagery around park was taken, I think, somewhere in 2018 during the flood time. So the lakes are, seem actually bigger than they are. But I get it. Overall, yes. Uh, in our region, there is millions of lakes. The first point to mitigate climate change was increasing the reflection, the solar reflection. What's the second one? Because I interrupted you there. Uh, yes, so well, with, with the first one, uh, it's also the problem not only about, uh, well, it's about reflectance, but also the timing. So in the summer, reflectance, uh, so grasses are light green, forests are dark green, but it's all shades of green. But if you come in our region in April slash May, everything will still be covered with snow, but the sun will be extremely dense. So you cannot walk in our uh, region outside all day without sunglasses. You will have uh, you will burn your eyes, and uh, during so the sun is extremely high. It's already poor day at that time there. But uh, the grasslands are covered with snow and they are white, and the stems of trees are dark, so they don't have any leaves. Large trees don't have any leaves or needles at that time, and they're just very very dark, and they get getting heated by the sun a lot. And during this couple couple months a year, there is extreme change in how much energy is absorbed by ecosystems. So that's quite important. Uh, second, and most uh, kind of picked up by perception of people and media, uh, Arctic is getting warmer uh, two to three times faster than the rest of the world. And the problem that in the Arctic is located what's so-called permafrost. It's a ground underneath our feet, which has been frozen for tens of thousands of years. And let's say sad reality, that this permafrost contains uh, more carbon than in our entire atmosphere. So all CO2 in the atmosphere contains less carbon than the organic matter in the permafrost. And if permafrost is warm, so if climate is getting warmer, permafrost is getting warmer too. And if permafrost will start thawing, it will start emitting greenhouse gases. And there is, you know, estimates vary. But in any case, it will be probably the biggest uh, natural source of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And it will be, I think the mildest projections are like 20% of all anthropogenic emissions. So degrading permafrost will add, let's say, another United States emitter. And that's the mildest projection. Some projections say it will be comparable with anthropogenic emissions for several decades. So that's kind of a very big deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, if there is a way to keep permafrost colder, 
those uh, ways should be applied. And I will give you some numbers just for understanding. So when I was a kid, temperature of air outside was minus 11 centigrade, so 30 years ago. Uh, at the same time, temperature of permafrost was minus six centigrade. Uh, now the climate got warmer and now the temperature of air is only minus eight. So we, our region warmed by three degrees in three decades. And the same trend was with, with permafrost. So it was minus six, now it's minus three. So there is this, uh, but also note there is this five degree gap. So temperature of permafrost is five degrees warmer than temperature of air. And the reason for that is that uh, in the summer, summer heat is penetrating to the ground and down to the permafrost without any barriers. And when in the winter, the ground is supposed to lose its heat, the snow is forming on the surface. The snow is acting as the insulator. And that's why the soil cannot release the heat. If, for example, there would be, uh, for several years, there would be no snow at all falling down, the temperature of permafrost will drop down to minus eight and it will be very stable. Okay, so, so is that, so to, to increase the grassland, would the snow retract? Uh, no, it's, no. Uh, it's, no, it's not about grasses. It's about, okay. uh, it's just a physical property. If we need to get permafrost colder to make sure it will not degrade. So yeah. that's the issue. And uh, if you remove the snow, you will get permafrost colder. And the question is, how can you remove the snow? You know, taking bulldozers and plowing the snow all winter long in the Arctic seems like a debatable method. Let's put it this way. <laughs> And at the same time, there is one friendly method. If underneath the snow, you have something tasty for animals, and if you have animals, these animals will come there, they will dig through the snow looking for food, and they, they will trample down and compact the snow. And compacted snow is much worse uh, heat insulator. So instead of half meter of thin, well, kind of soft snow, you have you know, five to 10 centimeters of very dense snow. And at that, uh, soil lose most of its heat insulating abilities and ground freeze much deeper. So you can realistically have two to three degrees cooling of permafrost if you have uh, grasslands and if you have uh, animals. And well, that, that seems like a very, very strong solution for that. Yeah, it's not that easy, honestly saying. Uh, mm. You know, you need to have something tasty underneath the snow. Okay. And that's, you need to establish already good grasses. And then it, this effect will go. So it's, it takes time. So that's a complex problem. So that's, it's not that easy. Yeah. But, you know, we need to kind of to do that anyway. Uh, third effect. Uh, if you talk about, you know, natural-based solutions to climate change, there is pretty much two things which any person in the world will say. So first one is we need to uh, reduce our carbon footprint. So we need to drive less cars. We need to go to uh, kind of more... Uh, efficient uh, kind of industries, etc., 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 and that's true. And the second option, which you will say, you how can we fight climate change? Everybody will say you we need to plant trees. It's a kind of the most common and broad perception. And in some places in the world, that indeed makes sense. For example, in the tropics, somewhere in California, where the climate is uh, super warm, it's moist, and the trees are growing huge there, and they're growing very fast. And also decomposition in these ecosystems is very high. So the only place where you can store lots of carbon is actually only in the stem of trees. And the Arctic is not like that. You can, of course, plant trees. 
but the trees are small, sparse, and it takes centuries for them to grow. In our region, uh, where we are located, it, uh, trees can store only about two kilograms of carbon per square meter in the forms of stems. So that's not much. And also, I don't know if you would follow in the news, but uh, our local state of Yakutia been the world uh, recordsman in terms of uh, forest fires this season. Oh, I didn't know it was the world record. That's not a good record. Yeah, that was uh, kind of pretty much huge territories of forest in in our local state burned down. So with climate change, it's getting much drier, and you know it's pretty much impossible to stop them. It's so very remote. There is no people. There is no uh, roads. Uh, so it's for those fires are impossible to get to. So it's kind of a disaster. And uh, you know you can plant trees there, but they will not consume much carbon and every once in a while any lightning or guy with matches and it's all gone however in the arctic what we have we have very cold soils and in our soils and our ground decomposition is extremely slow and imagine if you have uh, some organic matter which will be uh, buried down in the ground it will stay there for centuries if not millennia and what's the situation now now we have very low productive vegetation uh, mosses and lichens don't have any trees or roots. Uh, large trees don't have any deep roots, so all the roots are along the surface. And pretty much all the carbon in the soil right now in the modern ecosystems is allocated in the top 20 centimeters. And what's happening if instead of low productive vegetation, which doesn't need much water, which doesn't grow fast, we will start growing vegetation, which is very rapidly growing. And if it's rapidly growing, it needs lots of water. What this vegetation will do? It will start growing deep roots. And what is deep roots? So it is CO2 in the atmosphere, which got picked up with photosynthesis, so this greenhouse gas, and converted into organic matter and buried down to you know, one meter depth in the cold Arctic soils. And at that, even the small input of carbon roots, and it will not be small, it will be actually all right, will lead to a creation of a huge storage of carbon. So as I said, if uh, in the above ground, in the forms of stems of trees in, in the Arctic, we can store up to two kilograms of carbon per square meter, maybe someplace a bit more, but just a little bit. Then in the, if you create a rich soil and with grass and herbs, we can do that. It will take some time, but uh, I think we can reach up to 100 kilograms of carbon per square meter. So Arctic soils, it's a place which is actually now quite depleted in carbon but if you get proper ecosystems there the huge arctic territories can mm. become a huge storage of carbon yeah that and sounds that like be... a fantastic solution as well and the ambition is to expand the park as much as possible um, eventually and you know if this this argument is so logical um it's very easy to explain to people and when things really hit crisis perhaps a simple argument like that might change you know people's minds across different countries i think slowly we're getting there you know it's uh, in terms of perception of the park and park ideas i think we are in quite a breakthrough in the recent years so uh i don't know let's say uh maybe 10 years ago people were saying those and all oh, those two crazy russian scientists 20 years ago people might uh, throw a rotten tomato at us <laughs> and maybe 
And 50 years ago for our theory, we could have been sentenced to death. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sorry about all that. <laughs> so yeah. It's getting better. But right, yeah, but right now, there yeah. is, you know, people start to understand that what we propose makes sense. And there is actually big support in the scientific community and the public community. And uh, even the uh, authorities and in our local state and also in Russia is actually starting to listen to those ideas. And, you know, here it's an easy solution. It's a win-win situation because in many other places in the world, you cannot do big uh, restoration projects in the wildlife or in the nature because everybody is farms, everybody is private land, someone lives there, there is business and, and somebody is making profit out of the land. And in, in the modern Arctic, uh, there is not much profit can be up, theoretically obtained. So all the industries, mining are located in one kind of remote corners. And what we propose to do will not harm them in any way. Mm -hmm. it, sounds it sounds absolutely ideal. And you've got all the experience from 1996 to back up um, the scientific arguments. So it was worth a few rotten, um, rotten tomatoes along the way. So well done. <laughs> no, you know, it's uh, since we've been living on the coma, yeah, it's uh, above the Arctic Circle in the far east of uh, northeast of Russia. It's uh, not that many people who can throw uh, tomatoes that far. So it's here. true. It's true. But you've had to stick it out. And I, I was investigating a little bit, listening to your documentary that was done a while ago. And you were quite enjoying the city life. And your father persuaded you to come back and work on this project. Um, at the time, were you interested in the solutions for climate change? Um, so our main job uh, is the it's kind of place of job where we work is called Northeast Scientific Station. So that's a research station which was founded by my father back in 1980. And uh, it's now one of the largest Arctic research stations in the world. And it's pretty much private owned. And we are the owners and that's our main work. And park is, let's say, was one of the uh, experiments in the park in the research station and it was pretty much for many many years it was uh, i think most correctly it would be called our hobby because we never received funding for that and we just uh, did it for our own interest and uh he when he was inviting me uh, after when i was still in university to return back to the station he was would say offering me a position at the research station and also the park was already a big thing there the, at that time and uh i you know, I generally liked it in the Arctic. It's a place where I grew up. It's the wild nature. It's a, and I enjoy living there. So, and I was understanding and thinking that what my dad is doing is important and it's got potential to grow. And that's why I accepted his invitation to go back to the Arctic. Well, we're glad you did. Uh, so we hadn't got to the fourth effect because I interrupted you again. Sorry about that. That's so no worries. As I already, as you already mentioned, uh, Yakutia is a kind of country of lakes. Uh, there is millions of lakes. Uh, the ground is water saturated in most cases and most of the year. And if you have wetlands, water saturated bodies, and you have lakes, uh, and if you have organic matter there, you know what's uh, the organic matter is converted to? It's converted into methane. So in any anaerobic conditions, methane is produced. And methane is an extremely strong greenhouse gas. It's something like 20, 30 times stronger greenhouse gas than CO2. And uh, it's forming in the wetlands. And 
the reason why our region, which is actually extremely dry, we don't have much precipitation in our region. But the region, why the reason why we have such a moist environment is because all the vegetation is very low productive, and if it's low productive, it doesn't uh, evapotranspirate. With photosynthesis, it doesn't evaporate water. And if you have grasses and herbs, they dry out the soil much faster. And in these conditions, the ground is much, much drier. So you have less uh, wetlands, less most moist environment, probably shallower lakes and smaller lakes, I would think as well. If you have a kind of big scale ecosystem and work in full, kind of full strength. And at that, we have much less methane. So when all the wetlands is the main source of greenhouse gases globally. We will have some uh, methane coming from animals because you know ruminants are known as a big source of methane. But let's say the on the pasture, the animals will emit, let's say, about 25% of the methane, which would be otherwise emitted from the wetland on the same territory. You were saying that predators needed to be introduced back into the region. What predators would you like to see? Uh, well, there is uh, some predator in the region uh, anyway. So there are wolves as the main predator, uh, but they're very rare and they are not present in the park. I think at some point when we'll have already established populations of the herbivores, uh, we need to introduce predators. And right now we our uh, population of animals is still small, so we have you know, 20 animals of this kind, 20 animals of this kind. Most of these animals are having their you know, first, second, third, fourth uh, winter in the Arctic, and uh, they're not yet adapted. They don't have this population which has been living in the Arctic for several years, and I don't think uh, the number is enough to have predators. But once we will increase the number of, of uh, uh, herbivores, we need predators. And first of all, it's wolves, and I think it's the easiest one to get. And I think potentially, theoretically, we might have getting wolves even without our desire for that. So they might find a way in the park and they will see many animals and they would want to hang out there. Uh, secondly, in the wild ecosystem, there would always must be a big cat. And uh, in the Pleistocene, we had this, uh, I think it was called something like cave lion, but I was talking with one uh, geneticist from uh, California, and she said, Beth Shapiro, and she said that uh, there was a study on the genome of these cave lines, and uh, scientists kind of read the genome and saw that this genome is 100% identical to the genome of African lion. So what we had back in the Arctic uh, was actually African lion, and we call it African just because animal, this animal survived and the ecosystem where the animals, these animals can live survived only in the Africa. And, uh, but back in the time, these grazing ecosystems were everywhere and uh, lions could find them enough food everywhere. And they don't care about cold as much as people would think. They care about place where they can have enough forage. Uh, another candidate uh, would be Amur tiger. Amur tiger are located now in the east uh, south of Russia, near Vladivos, near China border, and the population of these animals is extremely in, under danger. And the same reason that they don't have a good ecosystem to live on. They cannot find enough prey. So the reindeers are sparse, and they know that the boars, which have been like 60% of their diet, 
the in the last few years the population dropped like 30 times because of this uh i think i think african uh swine flu and that's what kind of big disaster for them and if you have a ecosystem where there is enough uh, forage for tigers i think we'll be happy to live there even even though it's above the arctic circle that's very exciting amazing uh, would you tell the listeners what other animals are on the farm and if you do have a favorite animal or even plant from the region uh, could you tell us about that well what we introduced so far are what we had so we have uh yakutian horses reindeer moose that's like the most local animals you could find uh then we have uh, yaks, we have European bison and wisent, we have uh, some Kalmykian cows, we have some goats, a little bit of sheep. So we try with all those uh, domestic, well, we try to find the most wild versions of these animals, but still many of them are domestic. But in our case, if the animals are doing the good job in terms of uh, promoting the grass growth, that's good for us. Uh, then we have, uh, American bison, plain bison, so already two herds. Uh, what else? What else? What else? And this year we brought a group of uh, camels early in the spring, and they are actually extremely awesome. I wasn't really sure that it was a good uh, call, but there was many scientists and many people who said that that might be a good idea. And it's a Bactrian camel, which live uh, originally from in Mongolia, and they are actually very cold adapted and they seem to be extremely cool so we actually like them very much and they arrived just this june but they're really awesome they're very friendly unlike many other animals which uh, most of other animals in the park could never would approach a human those camels are really like to come close and hang out with people and they're really really cool they just like they have a very nice fur and they friendly and, and beautiful so uh, I am sure that camels are the top one favorite now in the park. Oh, how lovely, how lovely. Um, have you had any spiritual or profound moments within the park or within the region that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, I don't know. It's uh, Overall, it's a very tough uh, job and tough project. So no one have, uh, has ever created an ecosystem in the past. And that's a kind of big... Uh, challenge and there is clearly not enough knowledge how to do that and what we are doing is extremely complicated so you know any transportation of animals takes tens of days like this bison you are the record longest they were in the transport for 50 days camels took us 35 days to arrive and that's all extremely extremely complicated and expensive and uh yeah i'd, I'd love everybody to look on google maps to see the park exactly where it is because you have to literally zoom out to, as far as google can go to find where you are collecting the bison from so yeah. the park yeah, yeah the park is um, very very northwest and you were over I, I thought you were there now but obviously it was an e email from before is way west um mm -hmm. such a long journey yes so overall uh, kind of i don't know what if spiritual but that's a really kind of uh hard task and for us, it's a, it's probably kind of project of life, definitely for me. And uh, I would uh, take as a personal, personal say, quest to for me to create self-sustainable grazing ecosystems, ecosystem in the Arctic. Maybe it will not be uh, under my lifetime big enough to influence climate, but I hope that eventually the product which we'll create will be able to grow to those scales. 
And so I think that's kind of the pretty much the mission. So yeah, I can see, I can see that the purpose um, is very close to your heart, and it, it it is a quest. And you could say that it is a spiritual quest because you're doing this for mankind. So thank you. Yes, thanks for kind words. Yeah, yeah. No, we thank you for your work. Um, what can people do to help support you? I, you're supporting nature. I normally ask um, what can people do to support nature, but I'd like to say what can anybody do to support your project? Uh, well, of course, you know, since we are self-funded and all the expeditions and all, all the animals and just the maintenance of the park take money, so we are often uh, lacking resources and it's possible if someone wants to support us, they can either subscribe to our Patreon campaign or we have uh, non-profit uh, foundations uh, in US and in, 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 in European Union. So both are the options and you can find okay. it on our website. So any support by that is helpful. Also, we are, as I said, no one has ever done uh, the restoration of ecosystems before. And that's a kind of a task which is still unknown. And there is many scientific questions which needs to be answered in terms of animals, uh, how the ecosystem functions, how biochemical cycles uh, function, uh, what about the nutrients? Maybe we need some special insects. For example, we need dung beetles. That's kind of it. We need good soils. We need to restore soils and we need to know uh, how exactly it was functioning in the past. We just know that, you know, what we know is that ecosystems, productive ecosystems, uh, existed in the Arctic and existed for millions of years. So we are not inventing a bike. We know this bike existed. We just don't know exactly how it functions. And our job is to learn how to function that. And here we would really uh, like to kind of in invite scientists to come and do kind of independent research in the park and help us in understanding kind of uh, how we should proceed, what we are doing wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, and so we'd like to encourage expert expertise um, for, yes. for the projects and anybody that's yes. listening now that has a particular, um, we might put in the show notes uh, areas of expertise you're interested in. And obviously we'll put the links to the website and everything mm -hmm. so that if anybody's listening, they can, uh, they can I find think uh, people, you know, each person uh, will know what uh, our project is about and they experts some uh, really feel they can think of themselves if they can be of any help. Okay. I think that's uh, uh -huh. good understandable for that. I, I do have a question about books that you like to recommend. Do you want to recommend any books to people? Is there any is there any book about the park and about the project uh, and the story? I don't think there is like a whole book about the park at least yet. Uh, there is you know famous books like Drawdown or there is now been recently published that is something like 39 ways ways to save the planet and I think park is mentioning and uh, those books, I think, are quite crucial because uh, what we are doing, you know, the climate change is really a big issue, and I am kind of certain on that. And I think it's a global issue, and it's kind of issue which appeared, you know, started to appear three centuries ago. And there is no easy solution to this problem. The problem is too complex to be a kind of, there is no silver bullet. And PARC is one of the solutions. It will help uh, here or there. and maybe if we are super successful i think maybe park can solve if i'm like in identical in ideal world maybe we can 
uh, solve, let's say, 20% of the global warming problem. That's kind of the maximum I would estimate. But you know, other 80% have to be solved in, in some other ways. So I would think that uh, literature, which is uh, kind of investigating and in how to do that and teaching people how to do that, are quite important. I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in books. I am oh. an expert in how how transport animals in the Arctic, how to <laughs> oh. make sure they survive, and how to manage the research station in the Arctic. Yeah, That's yes. kind of ask me those questions. Uh, well, I would, I would love to ask you actually, what is your tip for transporting animals in the Arctic? Is what's what you suggest? Not that many people will have to do that, but it's so interesting. Well, it's a. Uh, it's actually not that complicated. You just need to do that. It's uh, once uh, you get a truck, you get a proper container, you fix it, you get enough forage, uh, food. Oh, for animals to survive in a long trip, they need to have good conditions. They need to be in dry, clean place with enough water and forage. Let's say, make sure that's that's guaranteed and the rest is just about time and money. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd love it if you did a little video of the next big transportation that you were doing. I think that'd be really fun for people to, to watch. Uh, well, they obviously see the difficulty of it as well, which everybody loves watching people <laughs> struggle. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then the exciting things, like um, recently they just dug up a wolf's head in the permafrost. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. not sure if you saw that on the news. And of course, what everybody wants to hear about is digging up mammoths and cloning mammoths, and we're going to get them back <laughs> into the Arctic. And have you anything to tell us about that and projects like that? Um well, yes, there's been a huge uh, news uh, recently that uh, George Church from Harvard uh, combined with, I think, the guy, uh, investor Ben Lam, and they started the project uh, company named Colossal, and they stated that they have $15 million to create a mammoth in six years from now. Six and that now. In the, yeah, I think it's now six years, and it's uh, been extremely big news. So it's been in every New York Times, Guardian, uh, and many uh, many others. And since uh, George and Ben said that the first mammoths will go to the poison park, you could guess that I also got a big piece of media attention in the last month. And uh, well, well, it will be such it will be so fun to see that. I'm not sure it will happen anytime soon. So you know, uh, in ideal world, we will make mammoths in six years. Uh, after that, you know, I'm not taking. Uh, and a one-year-old mammoth to the park. It's still a tiny baby. Yeah. So yeah. mammoths are not like mouse or even horses or bison. They take many years to grow. So we need yeah. uh, to introduce to the park. We need at least several species, and they need to be at least already at least teenagers. So that's not going to happen for a while. In any case, I you know there've been actually many many skepticism about the project and saying that oh it's kind of playing God or the money should be better used for conservation and it's actually i think those statements are quite ridiculous uh because hey i think those money were taken out of bitcoin uh, market which is i think trillions of dollars and bitcoin is it's a pure evil uh, which in my vision should die instantly uh -huh. and all the money should be taken somewhere else uh so if at least 15 money millions of dollars would be taken into science it's a, it's already will be good. Secondly, uh, George Church he's a brilliant and very successful geneticist, and what he's doing is not only about mammoths, it's not only about cloning, it's a, really about uh, pushing the science forward. 
And what Kaoso is aiming to do, this kind of cloning the mammoth, will, for that, they will have to solve numerous, numerous scientific and engineering, very complicated pro problems. And if they will solve them, uh, those so kind of solutions will be used in any parts of the kind of uh, human activities. And that will be beneficial. So uh, yeah. I personally would love to have mammoths in the park. Yeah, I, 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 better. So let's say from my personal point of view, I am of course biased. I want mammoths, it will be great from every perspective. Uh, I, well, but, I'm, I'm imagining you, I'm imagining you there saying, oh no, one of the mammoths has got a sore leg. Do you have a crush for the bison? Do you put them into a metal crush to treat them? Um, or, uh, or do you just uh, corral them and catch no, them? Ideally, let's say, no, ideally we want animals to be on their own. We provide yeah. them with, with extra forage, but there is uh, not that much activities we do with the bison. Secondly, you know, to keep the bison in, you need very, very serious fencing and mm. uh, let's say this shoot and that's something that's pretty much out of budget for our, yeah but uh, i'm just imagining all the things you'll need for the mammoths and then when they come you might say we thought they were going to be very wild but they're incredibly friendly <laughs> they're just coming over and saying hello all the time like yeah the I, would, I would be happy to have uh, friendly mammoths of course uh in any case let's say if the mammoths will be showing up of course we'll have a, a kind of proper uh, conditions for them and also you know mamas don't need a tall fence oh that uh, uh, let's see i don't think the mamas can jump over a one meter tall fence. okay that's already too okay. much for them so okay uh, it, it needs to be like very very kind of solid fence that's for sure <laughs> but it's should not be entirely like tall that's a uh, uh, it's solvable so that's kind of you know all you need is money if you'll be really getting the first mammoth come on like we would find you know, a million bucks to make a proper proper fence for that yeah i'm sure yeah and every the whole world would be looking at you saying what <laughs> they've yeah, got exactly. a mammoth in their park <laughs> yeah that, anyway that would be cool let's say just you know uh kind of any skepticism aside if they would succeed that would be cool in any case yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I don't want to keep you so long, but um, the last question, and I think I might know what your answer is, is if you had a magic wand, what would you like to do for the planet right now? Oh, I would want humans to learn how to live sustainably on this planet. So the park and what we're doing is kind of one of the attempts. It's not about even the climate change. It's how to use resources, renewable resources of the planet to make good living out of it. And it's, you know, it's even some sort of philosophy. It's a study, it's philosophy, it's maybe even a religion, let's say, which needs to be how to live on our planet sustainably and with, in harmony with nature and with other living creatures. Because so far, let's say, I think the best term for, for humans would be the cancer. So we are acting as a cancer on our planet. We are. Uh, over kind of growing extremely rapidly, we're taking our resources and we're destroying the nature and the kind of the climate, the nature, the living beings all over the world. And doing that, you know, if some something have a cancer, it dies. So for us, it's I think extremely critical right now uh, to learn how to live sustainably, how to stop being a cancer, and that's kind of the main the main issue. So we need to change perception. We need probably to change our nature to some bit. But, you know, we either do that or we go extinct. So that's kind of the main issue, I would say. Mm, well, I, it needs to be said. And thank you for being so inspiring with that message. 
And, and I was so excited about the talk and it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. And we'll put all the links and everything in the show notes and we wish you all the best with your work. And uh, if you ever happen to come to Ireland, we don't have any bison. Well, I think there might be a few in some of the zoos, but I don't have any for sale. But if you do come to Ireland, come and look us up and we'd love to talk to you more. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, I, uh, I think actually Dublin seems like a lovely place to visit. Especially for people who like to drink. <laughs> okay, good. We might see you then. Thank you so right. much, Nikita. It was great to talk to you. It was very difficult to get you because obviously you had to come onto the mainland to get the good Wi-Fi connection. Do you don't have a strong Wi-Fi at the station? Uh, I think we would be able to have a voice recording. Maybe yeah. it would be great, but we would have a video. Okay, well, thank you so much and hope to talk to you again. Sure, yes. Thank. Thanks for the invitation and good luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Nature Magic. I recommend everyone to check out the Place to Scene Park website and to search it on Google Maps to see exactly how remote it is. Please subscribe to the show, it's free. And if you like it, please write a review to help spread a positive voice for nature. We got a lovely review this week titled, Excellent and Refreshing. Really interesting guests from a wide range of backgrounds with different entry points to the very broad topic of nature. Interviewer does a great job, thank you, of allowing guests space to answer with insightful questions. We'd like to thank Professor Martin Bunzel for sponsoring this episode. Find his new book, Thinking While Walking, on Amazon.